Okay, so uh, this will be the third installment on the Vody Fault Lines book and uh, my last. And before I get to the main questions, I have a couple of uh, just kind of cleanup points I want to make. Uh, again, like I said, this could be 30 videos and I I'm really going outside of what I want to do just to add this more but it needs to be said because uh, in addressing this the way I have I think some people will say well you didn't address the meatiest chapters of the book now of course that's their opinion some people will say it's the first chapters of the book the definitional ones that are important other people say well it's the statistics on justice and the stories um, that he told there that we went over some people will say the larger thematic ideas they're running all through it. And then some people will say it's these chapters here where he really gets down and says critical race theory or critical social justice, however he wants to put it, is a, a new religion, a new priesthood, a new canon. And, he, and there's where all the good quotations are. And that's where all the, the real exposing is done. And, and I just want to use a few examples to show that's actually not the case. Uh, the, the, the quality of the work, the misquotations, the twisting, the pulling out of context, the, the half-truths, they run through those chapters too. And again, in many, many places that it would take hours and hours to document all of them. There was a little piece that stuck out here at the end of the Seeking True Justice chapter, and I'm just going to throw this out there. Uh, but as as we're talking about all of these issues with the various shootings and Vody's making the case over and over that either they weren't unjust or they weren't unique in the sense of deserving a national outcry about blacks. Um, near the end of that, he anticipates some objections and I, I wasn't impressed with this section. Uh, I thought he did very poorly on it didn't he didn't bring up any real objections and he didn't give them any real addressing but he did say uh, the people who appeal to america's racist past as a justification for citing race on all the police shootings and of course that doesn't by any means do justice to the people who do uh, make that connection and what their argument actually is And Vody's answer to that is not really substantial, but it is to say, well, at least this is better than the other ones because all the other uh, responses I get, they're, they're not to the substance of the debate. And at least, at least when people start talking about historical facts, they're better than the people who ignore all the facts. And so the moment some people start taking facts seriously, Vody says, this shows uh, now we can at least start having a debate uh, on the proper grounds. At least we're getting in the ballpark of a debate. And I think that's a little gratuitous on his own part. But there's a telling admission that comes in line here where he says at the end of that paragraph, so if someone disagrees with my assessment of the dissimilarities in these cases, then we're already on proper footing because, right, they're talking about facts versus facts. And he says... And whenever and wherever true injustice is found, we can join hands and advocate for justice when necessary. I skipped a parenthetical and I'm going to read it a second time. Wherever 
and whenever true justice, i.e. illegality, is found, we can join hands and advocate for justice when necessary. And that's a little bit telling. I don't want to make too much of it. But it's telling in the sense that if when, when Vody says in this chapter, true justice, his standard is what's legal. True injustice is, it est, in, in other words, illegality. That which is just is that which is legal. Now, I don't think Vody holds that view across the board. I believe he would deny that. But for some reason, in the purpose of this discussion about police uh, abuse, about um, brutality, he focuses his view of justice on legality. But we know where that argument goes, right? Slavery was legal. Jim Crow was legal. Turning fire hoses and dogs on protesters was legal. So by this standard, the people, uh, for example, you know, the, the, the types of conservatives in Southern Baptist churches and others, Southern Presbyterian, Southern Methodist, who would have been the grandparents and maybe in some cases parents of the people reading this book, would have been making this same argument to defend those atrocities saying look you black people you've got nothing to complain about this is legal if you were to follow Romans 13 and just submit that's God's justice in society submit to the powers that be and these arguments were used of course now I don't think Vody really believes that I just think he's being careless here but it's the kind of careless you can't afford to have in a discussion like this and if he does defend that, then shame on you, because that's just an obnoxious definition of justice. And in fact, it's the very reason we're having these arguments, because go back to the discussion I had in the last video on Mario Woods. Everybody agrees in hindsight now that his killing was unjust except the police union, of course. But it was legal because the, the police authorities that reviewed the case also said, we're not going to press charges on these cops. And I believe in that case, they actually also kept their jobs. By the way, this reminds me, I forgot to bring up in the last video, that this very issue was the whole reason Kaepernick got involved. Vody tries to frame that in his previous book, or in, my, in the, the previous chapter we reviewed. He tries to frame that in terms of, well, this Mario Woods thing happened, and that's what caused him to stand up and say, well, there's too many blacks being shot in the street. Racial inequality, I'm taking a knee. And that is not what happened. Uh, first of all, it wasn't the case that he looked at the facts of the case and said, okay, this is worth causing a national disturbance about. What happened was, if you read the articles, which Vody allegedly did, is that after multiple of these cases over a period of years and multiple discussions behind the scenes with other players and people he trusted and his, his uh, girlfriend asking the question, 
how can this happen? What can we do about this? How can we bring awareness? What can we do? And when that last kind of straw that hit the camel's back case hit the headlines, it was then that he said, that's it. I've got to do something now. So it wasn't like the facts of this particular case were particularly moving to make him decide. It was more like, as I said, the straw that broke the camel's back. And then what did he do? This is almost lost on everyone. He never used the, frame, the phrase unarmed black men. He didn't say we're being hunted and killed in the streets. He said, in his own words, he did an interview after the, the it was either a practice or a preseason game that week, and there were press crowding him on. He, for like almost 20 minutes, he talks to the press, and he's as calm and cool and collected and rational and coherent and articulate as anything Vody has ever said. And highly informed on the topic. He's clearly done his homework. And his stated, articulated reason for doing this was not, quote, unarmed black people are being shot in the streets. It was instead that there are bodies laying in the streets and people are not being held accountable for it. And that, my friend, is true. And it doesn't matter if the people killed necessarily were armed or not. If the killing was unnecessary, if the killing was, in hindsight, unjust, a violation of procedure, whatever you want to call it, if it was unjust, those people should be held accountable. And in case after case after case after case, we know they're not. In many cases, for example, in Derek Chauvin's case, you had a police who had a record of police abuse. This happens in many cases. That police who are known to be abusive of their authority and use of force may get dinged in a report somewhere they can get shuffled off to another department. Almost completely, well, I mean, as far as the public's concerned, completely unknown. And yet you've got a guy out here who's got a record for beating people. And nobody's held accountable. And in many of these cases where blacks or whites are killed by police unjustly, nevertheless, all the police needs is to say whether he's, true, he's honest or not. I feared for my life. And therefore, I, you know, I thought he was reaching for his waistband. It doesn't matter if he's right or wrong or if he made a mistake. It doesn't matter if he's outright lying about it. If they can't prove otherwise, he will get off. In many of these cases, police have been given, uh, well, they'll do an investigation. Who knows how long that can take? And in the meantime, the guy's put on administrative leave, which means he's on a temporary vacation, but he's getting paid his normal salary. That is not being held accountable. And that was what Kaepernick was talking about. So anyway, I, I bring that up to finish a point. I just realized that I forgot. And here, the equation of justice with legality, that's absurd. And Vody honest, honestly should know better. And at this point, uh, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's a mistake or a slip of the pen. Uh, haven't we seen enough of those in this book already? How many of those do we need to realize this is a sloppy book? This is a sloppy, terrible uh, work of purported uh, scholarship or expose or whatever you want to call it. Here's another example of that. Pressing into those chapters on the substance, this is in the chapter, A New Religion. Now, in this chapter, he's trying to show that this, the whole concept of woke or critical social justice is like a worldview, just like the Christian worldview. It's a 
comprehensive rival. It's got its own religious beliefs. It's like a cult. And of course, all of this is pure hyperbole. Just because people, adherents of a particular view, argue their position vehemently does not mean they're an irrational cult. And in fact, our, our calling them that over and over substantiates their point more when they say the same things about us. Because when we misrepresent what they say, when we misrepresent their positions, when we straw man them and all that, uh, it's not hard for them to look back at us and just say, who are these people? They're not serious. Um, and then, then it becomes clear that we're the ones that are the devotees of a particular viewpoint for which facts don't matter. No matter how much we explain it, no matter how much we read the text and show the explanations and, and introduce people to new material, it doesn't matter. The persistent, irrational, propagandistic belief that this is what they really believe just stops all discussion. And anyone who's trying to interlocute with us on those terms is simply going to say, all right, have a nice day. You are hopeless. And of course, they're not going to waste their time on it. Now, maybe that's what some of these leaders like Vody and them want. Maybe they want to throw a bunch of dust in the air and scare off the other guys. And then they can say, see, we, we ran them off. They don't want anything to do with us. Uh, they don't even want to debate us. And then just present themselves as, you know, kind of shepherding their own flock, protecting their flock, protecting their turf. And I think some of that's what's going on, but maybe more. Anyway, this is a quotation that's trying to place Ibram X. Kendi inside that what he's constructed as a cult. <clears throat> and, and the interesting thing is, this is about how they're redefining everything. And of course, Ibram X. Kennedy, Akindi is talking about defining everything. So he, that he's clear and not misunderstood, which is, you know, I guess to my point a while ago, it's almost a hopeless endeavor, no matter how much they clearly say, this is what we mean by racism, this is what we mean by anti-racism, they get straw manned by people who don't want to hear it. But in this particular case, this is far beyond a straw man. This is a distortion and twisting and half-truth, in fact, a, a complete untruth for the anti-racist. He gets the anti-truth treatment. So let's take a look at it, and I'm going to pull up here so that I can read this section. So Vody says, according to Kendi, if we don't do the basic work of defining the kind of people we want to be in language that is stable and consistent, we can't work toward stable and consistent goals. Right? Amen. I think Vody agrees with that. I think he does. He then outlines that language as well as his goals in a book that has not only reached millions, but has served as a roadmap for many more, who, although they don't know Kendi's name, have, def have definitely been influenced by his definitions. He writes, here's the block quote, this is getting into the, the alleged boogeyman quote. To be an anti-racist is to set lucid definitions of racism, anti-racism, racist or anti-racist policies. 
racist or anti-racist ideas, racist and anti-racist people. To be a racist is to constantly redefine racist in a way that exonerates one's changing policies, ideas, and personhood. Now, of course, what he's saying here is we need stable definitions because those of us who in, have engaged in racial discussion going all the way back to the slave era and post-slave era, and I think particularly he would probably have in mind uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Carter Woodson, and the people along that line, all the way up to today. And the people who have written in response to that or in, in uh, defense of Jim Crow era policies, Plessy, you know, separate but equal policies, all the way up through Brown, all the way up through the Civil Rights Movement. These people, have I've, I've said before, and I'll, I hopefully I'll get to this here in a few minutes too, is that racist does tend to keep shifting over time. Why? Because at one point, the N-word was perfectly acceptable. You would not have been considered a racist just for throwing the N-word around as a white person to black people. Uh, we know that is no longer acceptable. You would not have been called a racist in 1940s Alabama for segregation policies. You certainly wouldn't have been called a racist in any of the various churches, most of them across the South, that said miscegenation was against God's law. And some still do today. So to be a racist then would be, you know, so maybe by the, by the 1950s, uh, just kind of joy lynching was out of vogue or at least frowned upon. And if you were to do something like that, maybe you might be called a racist. After the Civil Rights Act, this all begins to change. Um, but then you could still, you know, use the N-word and still demean blacks. By the time you get to the Nixon era, you're not allowed to say things you used to say. But if you put it in code words, you can get away with it. So you can have white flight. You can have uh, our schools are different. You can have, um, you know, we want a safe neighborhood. We need a neighborhood watch. All these things in and of themselves, completely unobjectionable, right? But in certain contexts in history, it was racist. It was a racist move. But you couldn't call it racist, could you? Because it wasn't racist on the surface. So the, the what is racist has always been this kind of shifting thing. And I think that's what he's reacting against. If you are a racist, you are constantly trying to cover your tracks with code words and secret words. And now if you're, if you're hip on these things on Facebook, it's using weird spellings of words. So I know people who you know, are anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic online, but if you write the word Jew, J-E-W, Facebook might pick that up in their algorithm and inspect it, so they write J-O-O-S. Or I know one guy that likes to talk about Negroes and would spell it K-N-E-E-G-R-O-W-S, my knee grows. Um, and you know, there's all these, these ways to be racist where if someone pointed it out, you would have culpable deniability. Um, it's that kind of genre of thing that he's getting to here. So obviously there's nothing wrong with this. 
However, Vody is spotting something very sinister in what Kendi's talking about here. And after he reads that passage, that to be an anti-racist is to set lucid definitions. And in fact, uh, Kendi goes on to describe how his process of doing this throughout his career has been has meant that his journey along the way has been one of quote arriving at basic definitions so i mean all he's simply saying is this has been a long process it's not simple it's not like i sit down and open the dictionary and suddenly i had all of sociology figured out around me it simply doesn't work that way so with that understanding in mind then we turn to Vody's actual claim about this he twists and distorts these words so badly that this is what he gets out of it. And he wants to stress it. He says, it is important not to miss this. Kendi's journey has not been about actions. It has been about, quote, arriving at basic definitions. His work is set, is, is uh, rooted in, quote, setting lucid definitions. And then, of course, he goes on to talk about how they're redefining racism. And, and so, you know, allegedly, he's pulled back the curtain on Abraham. Y'all, see, I found that. I knew that's all what you guys were doing, just redefining everything so that you could trap us in these little Kafka traps and, and, and everything. And now you've got control of the minds of the public. If you go back, and, and what I was disturbed about is this concept. Kendi's journey has not been about actions. It's been about arriving at basic definitions. And so I went and I read the book and, you know, I was, you know, he doesn't describe a lot of social action that he's been involved in, but he does describe some. But this comment here on page 22 is very interesting. This is Abraham Kendi, just, um, so Vody's quoting from page uh, 17. And this is on page 22. So just mere five small pages past where Vody read. Kendi says, we are surrounded by racial inequity, as visible as the law, as hidden as our private thoughts. The question for each of us is, what side of history will we stand on? A racist is someone who is supporting a racist policy by their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea. An anti-racist is someone who is supporting an anti-racist policy by their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. Racist and anti-racist are like pre-label name tags that are placed and replaced based on what someone is doing or not doing, supporting or expressing in each moment. And he goes on and talks, says, these aren't permanent tattoos. No one becomes racist or anti-racist. We only strive to be one or the other. And there's a whole discussion to be had there, but I want the focus to be here on the fact that he's talking specifically about actions. And Vody here is trying to twist his words to say, oh, if we just get involved in this little word game and redefine everything, then we can trap people and cause all this trouble in society. And for Kendi, that's so far off the radar of what he's actually talking about. It's just, I wonder, how do you arrive at this conclusion? How do you read, just continue a few more pages, how do you read that? And then come back here and write, for Kendi, this is not about actions. It's only about definitions. 
I feel like Vody's trying to say something profound, but he doesn't really have the, the, the resources that he needs to say it, and so he's making it up. But in doing so, he's contradicting the, uh, the exact things that, that Gendy's writing. Again, put this in line with everything we've talked about on this score so far. Uh, all along the line, the early definitions we talked about, the four tenets, the places where Vody literally made up stuff, made up demonizing comments, and put them in the mouth of the author as if they were his own explanations of what he believed. Literally made up stuff and worked it in as a quotation of the other guy, multiple times. Look at all the places we've seen where Vody tells half the story that makes his point look good and leaves out all the parts that completely gut it. And then we come to something like this and you are you going to say again, Joel, this is just a small point. This is not a small point. When you say the guy is not interested in actions, just words, but then the guy goes on and says, these words are manifested in our actions. We tell if you are one of these things or the other by your actions. Why, why, why are you going to do this? When you say this is all about revolution, not reform, and yet the sources themselves talk all about reform, reform, reform. Why the continual lies? I just don't understand that the... the uh, I do understand it. I understand it because you can get away with it. Because your audience that you're writing this for will not hold you accountable. They won't do the research. They won't see the problems and they won't call you out for it. And so you can sell these books to them. They will gobble it up. They will run out into the, the, the world and say, best book I've ever heard on the subject, try to get other people to read it. And it will be nothing more in the social setting other than one more divisive throwing of elbows. unprovoked and it will accomplish nothing but furthering the division that's already there and I honestly I think that's part of Vody's goal I mean he says multiple times through the book there's a division there's a fault line but there's no healing it it's already here it's over with all the all that is left now is to see what falls out on which side and I think Vody's working real hard to get as many people over on his side so that he can I don't know what collect ties from them or sell books to them. I don't know. I, I just I, it, maybe it's about prominence, but I can't bring myself at this point after case after point after point after point after instance after instance all through this book. I cannot bring myself to accept that he actually believes everything he's saying, that he doesn't have an ounce of this on his conscience. Case study number two. This is in the section, the chapter on a new canon. Vody has made the case that the social justice warriors, uh, they're not interested in the sufficiency of scripture, and so they want you to read their woke books. Be the Bridge, uh, Rediscipling the White Church, True Solidarity, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, Color of Compromise. I'm really sad that Problem of Slavery in Christian America didn't make the Christianity Today list. 
it should have. Um, letter from a Birmingham jail uh, articles that are referenced. You do need to read that. And, and more. And Vody saying, these guys are trying to replace the canon of Scripture with the canon of wokeness. And I, I am interjecting the word woke, I think. I don't think he actually uses that in this section. And he gives two case examples of people who are trying to do this in his view. One of them is um, uh, John Onwuncheka. Onwuncheka? Did I get it right? Probably not. My deepest apologies, Pastor O. And he talks about his prominence. And he brings up a podcast that he did with Jamar Tisby on his uh, Color of Compromise. Wait, is that the name of the podcast? I forget the podcast. Uh, forgive me. Oh, Pass the Mic. That's it. On the Pass the Mic podcast. And it was the statement where John O. says, you start to read books outside the Bible and they help you understand what's being said in the Bible. And he says, that's sacrilege to some folks. And of course, Vody takes exception to that. But Vody talks about, here's what he really means. And, and he goes on to say, it's like this. Unless you had science, the Bible would not make sense. Now, Jono goes on to explain that. But Vody magnifies this statement. That if you don't have archaeology, you can't understand. And then he goes on to talk about history and sociology. And that's when Vody loses it. Vody says, that's it. That right, right there, right there. When you say we have to read sociology books in order to understand the Bible better, you have crossed the line and denied the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, I mean, I think that's ridiculous. We're not talking about sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, we, we know it's sufficient for, as he quotes the passage in here, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. But there's a fine line here, and Vody's working his hardest to push the guy across so he can hold the accusation. I went back and I looked this up, and I listened to the quote. I made some notes on it here. There was a statement in the overall bit of this that Vody again, doesn't relate. That John O. says, archaeology is science. If we did not have archaeology, much of your Bible would not make sense. The problem is when we start talking about social sciences and history, now all of a sudden those are out of bounds. Now, now he doesn't specifically say what Vody charges him with. He doesn't say we need sociology books or else we can't understand the Bible. But when you start bringing those in as helpful to, I would say, applying the Bible in our own time, I don't see what the problem is there. But he says further, and Vody didn't quote this part, he says, <clears throat> the problem is when we start to talk about social science and history, now all of a sudden, those are out of bounds. And he talks about we need to take a deep dive to verify the claims made by fellow believers. Now, when you interject that point, it changes the whole color of the discussion. Now, now the guy is not coming along saying, hey, 
we need to bring in a sociology book so we can understand what I, I don't know pick your pick your scripture the Psalms tell teach us or the prophets teach us in Amos 5 we'll get to that in a second uh, we need to take a deep dive he says to verify the claims made by fellow believers well Consider this, if you will. John O. pastors a church right here in Atlanta, probably 45 minutes from me. I live in Atlanta. I live in this area. I live in an area where the pro-South sentiment is so strong, people will still harass black people with Confederate flags as individuals. And I, I tell this story over and over. I probably shouldn't, but uh, I know of a case locally of a woman, of a family that moved into a house. And when they did, they were the only black people in the whole neighborhood. When they did, their next door neighbor hung up a Confederate flag in the window facing their house, in the side window of the house. All right. Obviously not a coincidence. Okay. Obviously clear racist harassment. So this stuff still goes on around here in broad daylight. And I've heard it in the churches. I've heard it myself in the churches. And I know I say things like that periodically and people will say, oh, I don't believe you. If, you. if you're telling the truth, why don't you name names? Well, nobody ever says anything like that unless they know they're in safe company. All right. Nobody says something like that in the coffee hall at church during fellowship time. No, nobody says that. I, they might lean to me in private when they know we're the only two in the room and say, I don't care what you say. I don't want those N-words around here or something of that nature. What am I going to do? Name names? What am I going to do? Call them out? And then what? Because you can't prove it. You can't bring up charges. You don't have two witnesses. Anyway, that's a whole different discussion. So just quit saying that because it's, it's helpless. If I could prove it, I would prove it. I would have already done it. But this guy is making an entirely different claim than Vody wants to attack here. So I think he leaves out that just those couple little partial sentences that change the color of the discussion. When you live in this society and you bring up the issue of race, immediately somebody comes to you and says something along the nature. You know, the Christian families, they didn't do this. They didn't keep slaves and beat them. The Christian families that owned slaves they only bought them from the slave traders because they knew if they didn't, they would be treated worse down the line. And so they bought them and they were nice to them and they fed them and clothed them and treated them as part of the family. And I have been all over the literature frontward and backward and I have never seen a claim like that anywhere verified in any literature, primary sources, secondary sources, or whatever. That is pure late 19th century, early 20th century propaganda. And that is exactly, I, I can tell by the nature of the conversation, the kind of stuff John is dealing with. So that when the issue of race comes up, which in his preaching it certainly does, and these issues are brought out, you've got to hit a history book to verify the claim made against you. You've got to go read Dabney to hear what Dabney actually said. Just like I'm telling you, go read the critical race literature. You've got to read the other literature to figure out and hear what they actually say. 
So this doesn't bother me at all, and I don't think he was saying you have to hit those particular books, history and sociology, or else the scripture won't make sense. I don't think he was saying that at all. He also says that verify the claims made by fellow believers. Also, to find out the talking points about political parties that don't stand up when we consider facts and dates and times. So consider, again, this cultural milieu where people are talking about what happened during the Civil Rights Act. What happened at this time? What happened at that time? And if we're talking about the church's role in history, absolutely you need a history book. When you're talking about how to apply the Bible even in racial reconciliation, it is important to know what actually happened and when and where because you don't want to accept some half-truth that, oh yeah, so-and-so, he was actually a good guy and then find out after the fact that he wasn't. So I thought it was very interesting that John O. referenced the fact that we need to have facts and dates and times because those are the very objective scientific criteria that they're all harping against the critical race theorists for wanting to prove. Allegedly, according to Vody, and this is a passage we unfortunately won't get to, but it's in there and it's all over the place that critical race theory hates science, hates objectivity. We've already dealt with that. Hates uh, fact. If they put facts up in their face, they just throw them away and they say they're irrelevant. Well, that's just nonsense. I mean, here you have an example of somebody saying, no, we want to go back and find out what are the facts? What are the dates? What were the times? And then when they do that, they get accused of denying the sufficiency of scripture. I just don't know what to say about some of these careless, reckless tactics, utterly reckless tactics. Anyway, moving on from John O, and again, I apologize for butchering the name, uh, case study to David Platt, again, the most utter sloppy scholarship, unacceptable in any book anywhere. For some reason, I feel like I'm starting to talk like Donald Trump with the superlatives and whatnot, but maybe not. Hopefully not. At the 2018 Together for the Gospel Conference, David Platt, then head of the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board, delivered a message from Amos 5. Well, I believe that's the Let Justice Roll Down passage. Then repented in tears for his white privilege, silence, and inaction. That's not quite a good characterization of what happened, but we'll let that fly for right now. Those inclined toward social justice found it inspiring, but to others, Platt's message represented a fault line. It was an exercise in eisegesis. Now, I find it hilarious that there's a footnote to define what the word eisegesis means here, but there is no footnote to David Platt's sermon anywhere. Nothing. <laughs> In other words, he says, instead of being faithful to the text of Amos 5, he had foreign ideas. He read foreign ideas into the text to make the Bible serve his agenda. The most aggravating aspect of Platt's message, wrote one blogger, was the flagrant misuse of Amos 5. I think that was from a, a very reputable source, the, the Bible uh, wingdings or whatever they call called, Bible thumping wingdings, I forget what it's called. 
the most aggravating aspect is flagrant misuse of Amos 5. And I'm like, well, what did he say? What did he say? And so I start reading the whole section. And of course, you can't really tell this from here, but from here on that page, all of this page, all of that page, all the way, um, well, I guess to the top of it. So to the end of this page, not a single quotation from David Platt. You get this. You're going to hold up a guy's sermon as an example of eisegesis. You're going to criticize a guy in, in the national forum <laughs> for what he says in his sermon. And at not one point in the whole section do you quote from the sermon. Not a word. However, you will quote one, two, three critics and reference others for uh yeah four critics who allegedly told Vody in private or in a blog how bad this sermon really was well if scholarship is done merely by rounding up the number of friends critics we have out there who agree with us then it's a popularity contest and I understand that Baptist ecclesiology actually lends itself to that problem. It's one reason we have the celebrity ministry culture to begin with. It's, it becomes a popularity contest. And at that point, ethics goes out the window. You can lie about people. You can write half-truths about what they say. As long as enough of your followers believe it and buy into it, you're safe. And there is no church court in which to try you. And, you know, this, there's attendant issues with that as well. So this just blows me away that at no point in here is the sermon that he's talking about even linked. There's no reference at all. I had to go search on YouTube. Thankfully, it was easy to find. But I had to go search it and watch it up. And you, you know what the content of this allegedly horrible eisegesis sermon was and for those listening don't know what that means it just literally means just reading your own ideas into the text it was exactly what i've encountered in almost every puritan sermon i've ever edited and i did when i used to work for american vision i would edit old puritan sermons i published several and they all follow a consistent pattern they read the text and then you exegete the text the text means point one, two, and three, and then you apply the text. You apply the text. And if you had three points in your exegesis of what the, the text meant, you would usually have three sections in your application. Uh, you know, God says we shouldn't lie. So in your you know, world, in, in your family life, that means you should be honest with your wife and, and et cetera, et cetera. In, in your business dealings, it means you should be honest in this way and that way. You apply it to modern contemporary settings, real life practical results. And that's exactly what David Platt did. He reads the Amos 5 passage. It talks about injustice. It talks about judgment coming in society because a, the, the people of God don't practice justice. And then David Platt applies that to our own times. You know what? Just maybe, maybe, just maybe, some of the ills that we, su that we suffer from today might just stem from judgment over the racial sins we've had in the past. Maybe. I'm going to go out on a limb here. And, and maybe, I mean, even Dabney, 
in the end of his disgusting defense of the South and Southern slavery in 1865, finally conceded, oh, well, God is judging us for something. I mean, he, wouldn't, he just did a whole book defending the institution of slavery, so he knew it wasn't that, right? Of course. But it was something for, I mean, we don't know what it is, man, but God's judging us. At least he noticed it was judgment. Uh, but if we look at the ills we suffer in our churches, the division, the hatred, the discord, the, the lies, the, everything that's coming out in these arguments, and we see all that suffering, the decline in church membership, the decline of the, the flight from church of young people, maybe, maybe somewhere in there there's judgment. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I'm not even a very good theologian. But maybe. And if Mr. Platt can stand up and say, maybe we should repent of the way we treated black folk. And, and I'm not even going to force it on y'all uh, so much as I'm going to take my own responsibility. Because I know I've been negligent here when I could have done better. I could have done better here. I could have done better here. And if you get choked up in the process of telling that, just join the club. Because those of us who see it, we get choked up. It was evil. It was wrong. And we walked right past it. We walked right across the other side of the street. And if Platt talks about this and says, you know what, maybe uh, for all of our talk of, of repenting over the Southern Baptist role, uh, maybe we haven't reached out as hard as we can. Maybe, maybe we ought to be a little conscious of the fact that our churches are still white as can be through and through on Sunday morning. And what may be the reason for that? And for that, my friends, for that application of God's truth to modern times, just the way the Puritans used to preach over and over and over all the time, the standard textbook Puritan preaching, these guys will accuse him of eisegesis. I've noticed in my very brief and unillustrious career that when you preach on topics that really hit people hard. They don't want to hear it. The first thing they will do is accuse you of bringing politics into the pulpit. And about the second, close second thing they will do is accuse you of eisegesis. Well, that wasn't in the text. Well, I'm applying the text, okay? I'm applying the text to our time and our lives. And, you know, it stings. Now, this is a subject I'd love to take an hour on honestly but it's we we pride ourselves in being people of the word of god i can't count the number of sermons i sat through especially in the pentecostal world but in the reformed and baptist worlds also in which the pastor preaches real hard on some subject you got to do this and we don't do that and the truth is you don't even want to you're afraid to get on your knees and pray because you know what the truth is going to be when you hear it, and you don't want to hear it. You're running from God. I've heard sermons of that nature my whole life. Hard-nosed, Bible-thumping, I mean just fire and brimstone preaching. And really not even fire and brimstone as much as applicational. Getting down and dirty. Talk about gossip. Talk about backbiting. Talk about not helping each other. I've heard hard sermons and people will walk away saying, oh, he really preached the truth today. It just cut me right here. 
And what I've noticed over the years is when that happens and when we praise it happening, you know, we, we, we act like it really hurt us. We enjoy it. And when we praise it really happening, it's usually because the truths preached are very general. Everybody can amen at the same time when gossip is preached on or when like the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, list of sins forbidden under the ninth commandment. If you haven't read that, go read it. Highly detailed, very scrupulous. Um, get into these fine, you know, what, it, what does it mean to break the ninth commandment? Well, it's not just telling lies. It's, it's not just slandering your neighbor, but it's when you don't listen to him, when you stop your ears to a just defense of the truth. Anything even remotely close to that, uh, preventing the truth from prevailing. And it's all, oh, it's just convicting. But it's a generality. And even those small particulars are abstract particulars. It doesn't really cut into your life and say, you did this. You're complicit in this. In the way that happens when we talk about our church's role in the history of slavery and racism. Because when you get into those topics that talk about they're going to cost you money or they're going to cost you status, or they're going to really wound your pride. Those are the things when I hear people not so much saying, oh, he really preached it to us today, didn't he? That's when I hear people say, now you've gone from preaching to meddling. Don't bring politics into the pulpit. What are you, a Marxist? You've, we've heard it so many times now. So, I see these instances in the script in in Vody's book. I just, I, how can you castigate a guy for eisegesis? Never quote him, not once. Don't let his own words even see the light of day. Don't even put a link so that someone could easily go check his own words from your source. Nothing counts in Vody's book except Vody's perspective. If Vody says it's eisegesis. It's eisegesis. You don't need to check. You don't need to hear. You don't need to verify. Well, I can t I can see why John O. says, you know what? Maybe we might want to go check a few other books to verify what people are saying. Because the more I verify in Vody's book, in almost every instance I look and there's something crucial left out. Time after time again. And... And uh, we'll end with this one. <sighs> oh, I don't, I don't really want to go there. There's a little bit playing loose with Margaret Sanger in here. I'm not a fan of Margaret Sanger, but I have made this speech many times. In fact, I did a long Facebook thread on it. You can go look it up and read it on she didn't mean whatever all these radical critics say she meant. I think more principled critics have come around and they realize that she didn't mean that. Um, she may have been a racist, I don't know, but she didn't speak before the Klan and she didn't say they were trying to exterminate black people. Vody quotes that wholesale. It's not true. Uh, it, the words are in a letter, but if you read the context, it means something entirely different. Vody ends this chapter in Fault Lines. This is the New Canon chapter, I think. Um, is that right? Yeah. No, The Damage. This is the chapter on The Damage. Oh, The Damage. 
Racism is real, he says, and it is alive and well in America. You would not know that from reading this book. But after 176 pages, he feels the need to make this admission. That is what you call lip service. If racism is alive and well in America, where's your book on that? And I'm not talking about a sermon where you stand up and say racism's bad, it's unbiblical, yes, the churches used to do it, our churches used to do it, we shouldn't be doing it. I'm talking about get into the society, get in the social structure, get in the social structure of just the church if you want to, and start talking about how racism is alive and well today. Vody says it, so I'm going to take him in his word that he actually believes this. Get in there and show me. And show me a practical way to get it out, to address it. Don't say the gospel, because we've already talked about that. Racists have historically hide behind the gospel and been the best preachers of the gospel in every era. Benjamin Morgan, uh, Palmer Morgan is one of them. The only thing, he says, okay, racism is alive and well in America. And, and when you do, when you get in there and identify racism in church life or however you want to do it, get in there, identify the racism. I'm not talking about your snarky parts where you say, oh, no, there's reverse racism because, you know, blacks are getting affirmative action or whatever. We know that it's not affirmative action anymore, but don't give me that. Give me the honest, what this sentence really means. Racism is alive and well in America. Get in there and show me. And then show me a practical way to address it. And you know what you'll be doing? You're right. You're right. You will be doing critical theory. Because you will be finding inequity. And you will be finding practical ways to root it out. And you will probably find that the existing means by which we have tried to root it out in the past are inadequate. And in doing that, you will be slapping a big high five to Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, because that is the exact same thing they've been trying to do. I have said as much from many pulpits on many occasions. Lip service. Remember my target here is the notion that inequity must equal injustice. It is this notion that undermines efforts to bring law and gospel to bear in the lives of those categorized as oppressed, as well as those categorized as oppressors. In this case, however, the injustice I see is the false witness bearing, Marxist ideology promoting, there's the Marxist label dropping again, right? Gospel perverting, haven't heard any of it. Ideology of critical race theory in its offshoot. I don't see it. If, if, if Vody intended to prove that, he's not done it. Not when you get into the nuts and bolts of what he actually did. He has cobbled together a Frankenstein and made it look like, put a label on it, critical race theory, and presented it as that. But it's nothing more than that. It's a monster of his own creation. My target here is the notion that inequity must equal injustice. Is that what critical race theory teaches? Has Vody demonstrated that? I know he claims that. Has he shown that? Did Ibram X. Kendi say that? Did Robin D'Angelo say that? 
Did Delgado say that? Bell, Crenshaw? Did the Frankfurt School say that? Did anywhere, anyone along the line make the argument that inequity must, must necessarily, that is, must equal injustice? Now, I know there have been some people who say, whether it was Kendi or Coates or somebody who said, you know, when I see police violence of a black person, when I see the disparities, etc., he said, when I see, therefore, because of those disparities, when I see a policeman shoot and kill a black man, I see racism. Now, that may be the case, and he may see that, he may assume that because of historical uh, experiences that he's read about, studied, whatever. And he may be wrong. But he doesn't say it must equal it. And I have not seen anywhere in any of the literature, backwards and forwards, all these journal articles, I've not seen anyone make that argument. I have seen people make the argument that in light of the history and the progress of history, it is very likely that is the case. And in fact, it is not wrong to treat it such as the case. They do not say it must be the case. I, I don't care if you think that's splitting hairs. Number one, it's logically the case. And number two, it's more often than not the case. It has been historically. And when we, you know, we went through this in the previous video, when you squint and look real hard at the statistics in the way you want to, and don't count all these other factors, then yeah, okay, you can say, well, there are other factors involved. But the more factors you actually add into it, whether it's poverty and all of that, or whether it's crime or whatever, they all lead back to the poverty. And the poverty all leads back to the historical scenario. And again, I'm not gonna redevelop that argument. But even if that's the case, it's setting up kind of a default for analysis it's certainly not saying it must be the case. Inequity must equal injustice. Nobody said that. Nobody said anything like that. And in fact, if you do, I thought, who in the world has said that? Because he's got it, by the way, he's got it in quotation marks, which suggests that he's pulling it from somewhere. I don't know where. Did you hear it in an article? Did you hear it in a book? And so I do a little quick Google search of the phrase, and I get exactly... One, two, three, four, five hits. We're talking about Google, folks. This is where you type something in and you hit enter and you get 10,000 hits or a million hits. With Vody's phrase here that allegedly is the target of all his critique in this book. The, the synchronon in his mind of critical race theory. Inequity must equal injustice. You get five hits, and every one of them relates to Vody's book. <laughs> A review of his book on G3, his book listed on Barnes & Noble, his book listed on Google Books, because it's searching the text of it, right? Uh, another review and his book listed on Amazon. 
Inequity must equal injustice. Five, actually it only says four because it's not counting, apparently it's not counting Amazon in the UK. Four hits, four hits, all of them Bodhi's book. You know what that means? Bodhi made it up. Not only did he make up the phrase, he made up the idea because nobody teaches that. Now, I want to reiterate this point. At what point do we say enough's enough? Do I need to go through all the other instances in the book? Do I need to go through every point line by line? Surely, I hope not. Surely by this point, even if you're a huge fan of Vody, you say, some of that's pretty egregious stuff. When you're making up words and putting them in your enemy's mouth so that he looks worse than he is. When you're putting your own words into the very sentences that are footnoted as a quotation, that's lying. It's dishonest. And when you're doing it specifically to demonize your opponent's view, it's unacceptable. When you leave facts out, when you make facts up, when you twist and distort the meaning of quotations over and over and over again. Again, I, I just don't know how anyone anywhere could think this is worthy of praise. I don't think they, I don't see how they could think it's not worthy of some kind of sanction, whatever you can do, let alone be of value, let alone be of praise. And that leads me to wonder why people do. And this is all I can think of. Going back to what I said at the very beginning, I think people want to have that kind of in their arsenal. People whose main personal, political, social trajectory is Fox News or some kind of an alt-right, maybe libertarian, of a of a you know of an old school paleo conservative Pat Buchanan type bent who wants to have this or they they want to hear this they want to hear there is no racism in America that anyone who says so is a Marxist that all of these theories are based on Marxism that when we actually do the real studies it turns out that there is no racism in police shootings. There are no racial disparities. Black people brought every bit of it on themselves by being involved in crime, by having fatherless homes, by being involved in hypersexuality. It's all their own fault. This is about nothing more than personal choices, individual responsibility. It, there is no social aspect to it whatsoever. And that exonerates the traditional white conservative mind, of which I am a member. It's deeply comforting to know that we don't have to get involved. And that's the only thing I can make sense of this, because there's a story, I don't know if I told this before in one of the previous videos, but there's a, a, a little helpful explanation in 
one of Greg Bonson's books. I believe it's always ready. And he talks about how our presuppositions work. And by the way, there's talk all through here about presuppositional critique. This is not presuppositional critique. You, you are not showing, you are not analyzing the claims of someone based on what has to be true if they're true. Um, in which case you would actually end up being in favor of critical race theory. Um, but that's a whole different story. But in one of Bonson's books, he talks, he talks about how presuppositions work and how our beliefs work. And he talks about them being a network of beliefs. And he tells this humorous story about the man who believed that he was dead. And it's absurd, of course, but he believes he's dead. He goes to his doctor. His doctor says, he tells his doctor, I'm sorry, doc, there's nothing you can do for me. I, I'm dead. The doctor said, what? What are you talking about? You look alive to me. He says, no, I'm, I'm actually certain I'm dead. I believe it. And the doctor says, he thinks for a minute, he's a scientist, right? And so he thinks of a way to prove this, disprove to the guy that he's actually dead. And he thinks, oh, I've got it. Uh, he says to the guy, do, you, do uh, dead men bleed? And of course, you know, not everybody knows this, but most people know that a dead corpse doesn't bleed because the heart's not pumping. There's no blood pressure. So if you were to print, pin poke it, poke it, pin prick it, uh, the blood would not flow out. And so the man knew this, and maybe he read mystery novels or something, I don't know. And he says, he says, no, that corpses don't bleed, dead men don't bleed. And so the doctor grabbed the man's finger and gave him the old medical pin prick. And sure enough, the blood began to beat up and flow out. And the man was startled and he stood back and he looked at his finger and he says, well, doctor, I guess I was wrong. Dead men do bleed. We don't like to let go of our core presuppositions, see. Our beliefs exist within a network of beliefs. And it's really easy when we have beliefs that set up kind of core places in our network of beliefs, core presuppositions, if you will, but they don't need to be presuppositions. If they're core beliefs, and someone comes along and disproves that, we might be able just to kind of rearrange the network so that it redistributes the weight and re-supports the belief that we really want to hold on to. And we readjust with our imagination. And Bonson talks about this. And, and that's why when you're arguing with people from almost any other faith tradition, it seems like it's almost fruitless. It doesn't matter how many things you just prove, they just move on to the next thing. And you get into this kind of whataboutism that I talked about before. And I think at the, if I were to have this discussion with somebody and I'd say, you know, Vody makes up these words here and you know, Vody, you know, basically was dishonest here. And if you know, and you know that Vody made up stuff here and do you know he was wrong about this and do you know he left out half the story here and that completely changes it and and over and over and over and i go through, if i were to go through every instance of the book somebody in fact i think a lot of people that would make zero difference to them whatsoever and i've experienced this in my career talking to people about end times trying to reason with dispensationalists about end times beliefs it doesn't matter how many times end times prognosticators have been wrong over and over and over in history. Even people they trusted and believed, Hal Lindsey himself, uh, the other guy, 88 Reasons, whatever. Uh, these guys were overtly wrong. 
And people kept buying their books and following and donating to their ministries anyway, because they loved the person and what he stood for. And I think that Vody's book here fills the need of that strident, uh, come out swinging, um, you know, take no prisoners, kind of machismo, bare knuckle machismo. Um, I, I should be fair, he doesn't project that in the book, uh, but it is a take no prisoners approach. And it is a little snarky in places. And it does have that effect of, you know, I'm giving a good backhand to these these liberals and I'm shooting down the liberal media. In, in, in a lot of ways, this is a, a Donald Trump type book. This is a book written for the times and the tenor of the times of the Trump administration. The media lies to you. Liberals want to steal your country and we're not going to take it. You know, and this book, this book is the wall. This is the wall we're going to build. And in fact, it, it's a fault line. It's a dividing line. This book is the wall we're going to build between those people over there that are woke and us people over here who believe the Bible. And it doesn't matter if by saying it like that, you impugn those people over there who also believe the Bible. You can construct it in a way that they don't, and you don't mind that you're lying because the prize that you get is everyone on this side of the line and your own little clique, and your own little turf, and your own little church. And that's a massive, I think, I, I understand that's a massive accusation to hurl at someone. I, I don't mean to say that's consciously what Vody's doing, but I say that is, if not intended, that's certainly the purpose that this book serves unintentionally. Uh, it speaks to that crowd that wants to hear this message, and it doesn't care if half of it's lies. It sounds good. It's what they want to hear. And going back to my point about how we, you know, we, we fool ourselves into believing we're really accepting of tough preaching. We're, we're not. Uh, we are, I think, I think it's us, conservative Bible-believing Christians, who need to ask ourselves very critically within our own, our own milieu our own culture, ask ourselves, have we heaped up to ourselves preachers because we have itching ears? You know, Paul was talking about this to Timothy for his own day, and I think we do the same thing. And we are doing it under the very guise of saying, those guys over there are perverting the gospel, and they just want people to tell them what they want to hear. They deny the sufficiency of Scripture. They, they, they. And judgment must begin at the house of God, as I've always said. And we need to be pointing that finger back at ourselves. And really analyzing. We're the ones that are grabbing for preachers that will tell us what we want to hear. Because we have itching ears. We want to silence those liberals so bad. We want to shut down this discussion on race so bad that we don't mind if our books are full of errors, are full of lies even. We will forgive those that do it if it will serve the purpose of addressing our core goal, and that is stopping what we perceive as liberalism. 
the same dynamics happened during the, the Civil War era, during the antebellum era, during the lead up to the war for 30 years or more, um, 60 years, more. These intense arguments over the, legal, over the, the, the morality of slavery. Is it biblical? Is it not? Intense arguments. And the most ardent Bible believers made the most ardent arguments from the Bible. And in doing so, they called the people on the other side who were opposing the institution of slavery, they called them Jacobins. A Jacobin was a proponent of the French Revolution, which if they had been born a half century later, they would have been called communists commies, leftists. That was the name that they were given. Red Republicans. A red Republican was a leftist. And that was the name that was given to the radical abolitionists and the party, the members of the party of Lincoln, all because the Southern parties and some in the North were preaching strictly from the Bible and saw the people who were calling for the equality of the black man to be deniers of the sufficiency of scripture. Now, if you want uh, to read about that, uh, of course, I did the book, Slave, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America. It's almost 500 pages. It's an intense history from 1619 all the way forward. Uh, in fact, before 1619, all the way up until the 1940s and 50s. And it gets to this issue of how do we do something about it. And as I said, I'm just going to spend a couple minutes before I close down on this. As I said, the only way to address this is to do what David Platt did. And it is to point the finger at yourself. This is where we prove whether we, we are really into hard biblical, hard-nosed Bible-thumping preaching or not is when the text really cuts you. It really cuts through your practices. It really says to you, you know what? You gotta make a change in your life. And that change is gonna cost you money. And it's gonna cost you time. And it's gonna cost you sweat and tears. It's gonna cost you. It may cost you friends, but it's gonna cost you. And when you make a decision like that, then you're confronted with the decision. It is so easy to rationalize. And that's why I end my book uh, with a, a brief epilogue called uh, The Men on the Jericho Road. And it's a discussion of that parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, Hmm, I would not normally stop to read a text message, but yeah, okay. It's a discussion of the parable of the Good Samaritan. I won't go through the whole thing here because it's really a sermon. But as I said already in the last discussion, this whole thing takes place in the context of a racially charged setting. We all know we've heard it. It's always mentioned the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. Jews thought Samaritans were kind of a half-breed, they were not pure Jews, and so there was this racial, ethnic animosity to it. But it was more than that, because if you read the text leading up to it, the chapter or so leading up to it, 
Jesus is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he's going right through Samaria. He's they're right there. And when he gets to Samaria, they don't receive him because they perceive he's not going to stay with them. He's going to go on to Jerusalem. And so they're like, you know, this is what I'm kind of gathered from the text anyway, is they're like, fine, you don't want to stay with us? You can go around. We're going to let you go through our territory. Whatever it is, when they leave, the disciples are angry. And they're saying, Jesus, let's call down fire and brimstone on these people. They don't deserve you anyway. And he says, I'm not here to bring judgment in that way. And they continue, I forget the name of the cities they actually go to, but if you look at them on a map, they're literally right around the edge of Samaria, right near Jericho, and on down toward Jerusalem. And it's somewhere along those lines, Jesus empowers the disciples to go out and heal, and heal the sick and cast out demons. It's the sending out of the seventy. Now, it's, it's very important when you read Luke, pay attention to the audience cues. Who is Jesus actually talking to? Many times it'll say, and then he turned to the disciples privately and said this, and then he turned to the Pharisees and said this, and then he turned to the crowd and said this. And when, if you don't have those audience cues, you don't really realize the context of what he's saying, why he's saying it to that particular group. It makes a difference. And he's talking to the disciples and they come back and they say, Jesus, even the demons were subject to us in your name. And he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And he says, don't be, um, don't rejoice because they're subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And in the midst of this discussion, it says a lawyer stands up. And he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I, I elaborate on this more in the text, but I need to do it even more in an in a article probably. But what he's, what's going on here and the text Jesus references and the things he says makes it clear that the coming of the kingdom and the inheriting of eternal life, the places that he's talking about, that having your names written in heaven, and the demon subject to you. All of that, all of those images and ideas are a cluster of ideas that come out of Daniel chapter 7 and some from 12. And it's the image of the son inheriting the power, inheriting the throne, from the son ascending up to the throne, inheriting the kingdom, and then all of his disciples, all of his 10,000 saints join with him as he comes back to rule on earth with his saints. And it says specifically in Daniel, and the saints rule with him. And it's my understanding, because this is what I understand is going on, is that Jesus is announcing he has that power. The same thing he says in the very adjacent chapter, Luke 11, to the Pharisees, if I had cast out demons among you, no doubt the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come among you. Um, so he's saying the kingdom of God is here now. And this, this lawyer, I think, perceives that. First of all, where'd this lawyer come from? There are no throngs of crowds following Jesus here. None of them is mentioned in these texts. It was only sending out the 70 disciples and the disciples returning to him, talking to him in private. And in the midst of that discussion, a lawyer speaks. There's only one conclusion I can draw from that. It's that this guy was one of the 70. He was partaking in the casting out demons and the healing of sick by the power of Jesus. And now he's asking, he's realizing He's part of this reality. Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? 
when does the fullness of all this come? What do I have to do? And that's when Jesus hits him with the parable of the Sermon on the Mount. Because all of these disciples had just been gathered around him saying, let's burn, let's rain down fire on those Samaritans over there. And so Jesus tells them a racially charged parable about those very Samaritans. You're worried about, you're amped up because demons are submitting to you. You're inheriting power. You're feeling it. You're wanting to know, when do I get all of it? When do I get all this power come into my hands? And now I'm going to tell you, here's what the kingdom of God really means. You see those Samaritans over there? They're more righteous than you are. And I understand I'm stretching the meaning of the parable a little bit, right? But he tells a parable in which that turns out to be the case. Because here's what it all means. A certain man, because Jesus says, well, you know, follow the law and love your neighbor as yourself. The guy says, well, then who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus brings up this racially charged stuff. Who's my neighbor? Well, obviously not those dirty Samaritans over there, right? Certainly not those, you know, those people in the Moynihan report, right? And Jesus says, uh, tells him the parable, you know, the guy goes down to Jericho, he falls among thieves, they beat him, they leave him for dead. And then comes the Pharisee, crosses to the other side of the street, keeps going. Then comes the Levite, crosses the other side of the street, keeps going. And then comes a Samaritan. And the Samaritan very well could have said, I'm glad to see a Jew get the crap kicked out of him. He deserves it. It's time to get whitey after all. But he doesn't. He comes up and, and he nurses the guy back to health. He carries him. You know the story. He, not, he doesn't just leave it there. He takes him to a hotel. He puts him up. He bandages his wounds. He stays with him until he can be assured he's going to make it. And when he leaves, he leaves money with the innkeeper and says, anything that accrues to his charge for his medical expenses, put it on my tab. And, and when I come back, if it costs more than what I gave you, I'll pay the bill. So here's a guy who waded into a racially charged situation. And he had a choice to make. And the prevailing society around him has already shown him it's a very easy choice to make. It's very easy to not get involved in racial issues. It's very easy not to bring pol po uh, politics into the pulpit. It's very easy not to cross the line of the two kingdoms. It's very easy not to get into meddling instead of preaching. But he doesn't do that. He looks at it and he says, I have a choice between that easy route or the hard route. And the hard route, it's not just going to be hard because this is messy. This is going to cost me. It's going to cost me time, labor, and money. And if we're going to patch up this situation, it's going to cost money. And that is precisely why I think the Pharisee and the Levite, they, I think they assessed the situation the same way. And faced with that reality of something that really is dirty, really is uncomfortable, really requires me to humble myself in light of my prejudices, and it's going to cost me time and money. And to walk into that, 
it's much easier to look at that and say, that guy had it coming. That guy is from an out of wedlock marriage. That guy knows there are thieves here. And he walked right into it knowing it's his problem. You don't walk into the dark alley in this neighborhood. Not my problem. You may have even gone so far as to say the only reason he came there is because he's a criminal himself. He was doing a drug deal with those other robbers and he got the worst end of it. Whatever it was, we can't know. It's best to stay safe. I've got to guard my flock. I've got to guard my ministry. Stay over here on the safe side of the road. Don't get involved because it's ugly. And I know that ultimately Jesus is the Good Samaritan. I understand the meaning of the parable. But you know, this mind, let this mind be also in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't think it was robbery to be in the form of God, took upon himself the form of a servant, was humbled uh, in the form of a man, was humbled unto death, even the death of the cross. Let this mind be also in you. So, so the ethic of Christ is simultaneously an ethic for our way of life as well, for our actions. As Ibram X. Kendi said, our definitions must flow into our actions. As the Frankfurt School, let us analyze these practical situations in society to see how we can transform society. Instead, we get the Pharisee and the Levite on the side of the road. We get Vody giving lip service to social transformation, but no actual analysis and practicality for social transformation. Those are the things that we're told when we get to that point, don't belong in the pulpit. And I look over and I see the critical race theorists and the critical theorists. I see the white studies people. I see the, the anti-racists. I see Robin D'Angelo and the white fragility folk. I see all that whole world engaged in social transformation, taking things seriously, identifying problems, finding ways to fix them. I don't agree. I don't always agree with the way they want to fix them, but at least they're doing the work. The churches and we led by books like this historically have used excuses to walk on the other side of the street and not get involved. So that's why I do this. And that's why I encourage you to do it. Again, I would encourage you to read that. Um, I'm pretty sure I put up the epilogue to my book online for free. And if you don't want to buy my book, I'm not just trying to sell you a book. You can go to my Patreon page where I have several of my books, including The Problem of Slavery, there for a free PDF download. You need to read it. You need to understand the depth of the history. You need to understand how arguments and defenses like this have historically been used to keep the status quo in place and to create kind of uh, a barrier, if you will, uh, to keep the racist policies in place. Historically, it's true. And, and you can see that for free. You don't have to buy my book, but if you, if you want to, and you want to bless me in that regard, you can go to Amazon and look for Joel McDermott, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America. And I'm usually accessible on social media, uh, Facebook, certainly. If you have any questions for me, uh, feel free to hit me up. Um, if you feel like there's a particularly strong case in this book somewhere, 
a particularly strong passage or argument that I absolutely crucially must deal with. Uh, by all means, bring it up. I'm not going to promise I'll answer it. I, I'm, I'm afraid that I'll get a mailbox full of people saying, you didn't address this, you didn't address this, and then we're right back to the same problem. If you can't see from what I've prepared already how badly they've distorted the overall message of critical race theory, or critical theory in general, and how badly they've used so many specific instances with openly dishonest tactics. Um, if you still need further proof than that, then I'm, I'm not sure that one more is going to do it. But again, I, I leave my mailbox open to you. And uh, again, if you have any general questions about this at all, uh, please feel free to drop, the, drop me a line. And thank you for listening and taking the time to go through all three of these videos. And if you have made it through all three of these videos, congratulations, because this is a lot of material. Um, there's a lot more. Don't read the critics in order to understand what something is. Go to the thing itself. If you, if you can't get it clear from that, go to secondary sources like the encyclopedias of philosophy that explain what the primary sources mean. Okay, When you have a handle on what it means, then go, maybe, to the critics to see what they're saying. Uh, the truth is, if you want to find the real critics of critical theory, go to the academy. Because there are arguments happening within the critical race theory debate. And in fact, Vody didn't tell you this either. Neither do any of the other people throwing around the word Marxism. Uh, but there's a debate happening within the book that Delgado presents. He, he, he says specifically that I come from the more determinist angle of social theory. And when we first started this, that was kind of the dominant view, but that fell off very quickly. In other words, it's more of an actual, what you might call a true or Marxist view. Very quickly was overtaken by the Gramscian view, which is that we have to focus on uh, issues in culture and ideology. And he, he's open about this in the book, that there's a divide, there's an argument, and that the Gramscian view is the majority. So anyway, these kind of debates happen. The, the most vociferous critics I have seen I mean real critics, genuine critics, ones who get it right, uh, of critical race theory that I've seen are in the academy are the actual Marxists. And again, they don't tell you this. Uh, that is because Gramsciism is the opposite of Marxism and they wanna give a true Marxist critique of critical theory. So again, all this stuff you're not getting, but uh, thank you for listening and if you have any questions, feel free to drop me a line.